I'm thinking, I'm thinking. What were you thinking? I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Don't say anything now. Just think about it. You're listening to Stop and Think About It. A podcast for the Christian thinker. In a day when sound biblical preaching has been replaced by man-centered entertainment. And the church has become increasingly anti-intellectual. This podcast will encourage believers to think biblically and theologically. So please join me as we get ready to stop and think about it. Greetings, friends and foes, saints and sinners. Welcome to another episode of Stop and Think About It. Welcome to part four of Twisted Scripture and Christian Cliches. So... One of the passages that I've taken out of context is Matthew 18, 20. Anybody know what that says? For we're two or three are gathered in prayer. There I am in the midst of them. But the word prayer is not there. So, man, I've used this. I butchered it. I've heard a lot of people use this at their prayer meetings where two or three are gathered. But if you read it in its context, uh, it's a little bit different. And so I know we dealt with in part one, I believe, no, earlier than that, we dealt with, oh yes, biblical forgiveness. Yes, Matthew 18. Matthew 18. So we dealt with- Ecclesiastical questions. Yes, with that part up uh, verse 15. Episode five, I believe it was. Yeah, verse 15 through uh, 17 with the steps of biblical forgiveness. Well, one of the things at the end of that, it says where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them or among them. But Steve, does this passage have anything to do with a prayer meeting? No, it doesn't. Well, I mean, it could if you're doing church discipline in a prayer meeting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's about the forgiveness, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's about bringing church discipline upon people. So just imagine for all of those or all of us who have used this wrongly, if two or three have to be together for Jesus to show up, there's a couple major problems. Number one, you can never pray on your own mm-hmm. because you have to have two or three people God's, there. God's not in the midst. Or you just your prayers just wouldn't be heard because Jesus yeah. is not listening. God's not in the midst. He's not around. Right. Number two, Matthew 28, 19 uh, to 20, which tells us when Jesus said, lo, I'll be with you even till the very end of the age, that would cancel that out hook, line, and sinker because Jesus couldn't be with you because you would have to have two or three with you. Uh, always. Bathroom, always. sleep, Oof. everything. But yeah. didn't Jesus say when you pray, go into a closet alone? Yes. And pray to your father? There's another three one. Three closets in a room house with the, the... I guess it doesn't make sense. So really... um, it has nothing to do with that, does it? So what does it mean that when two or three are gathered, I will be there? In what way will Jesus be there? So Jesus will be there in agreement with the decision of the local church upon the discipline of a sinning member of the church. Who's applying the biblical definition of what that means. Who went through all the steps. Correct. The last step being told to the church. Correct. Now the church is handing them over to Satan. Mm-hmm. Isn't right. isn't isn't that kind of what Paul said in First Corinthians chapter five verse three, when he was telling the church to discipline the man who is sleeping with his stepmother? Yeah, and he said this: For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, 
And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So isn't that kind of similar to what Jesus is saying, that I will be with you? Paul was saying that, turn this man over to church discipline. I'll be with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus will be with you. So it's not about prayer. It's no, it has nothing to do with prayer. And I've had discussions even with other elders who've disagreed with me on this uh, and Pastor Peter on this and I guess found commentators that somehow said this was about prayer. I don't think you need to go to a commentator on this one. No, no, it no. doesn't mention prayer at all. Now you can prayer anywhere in the context. No, I mean, I think you should be prayerful in the midst of all of this. Sure. So it's, it's amazing how we can take one verse and give it a meaning Ignoring the context and then thinking that verse means that when it doesn't. Yeah, they interpret, implement, and forget about investigation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, I mean, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. The verse is escaping uh, my mind, but where you had to have two or three witnesses to indict someone. Correct. It's all over in Leviticus. It's it's, it's in Deuteronomy. So, you know, it's not just me personally um, bringing attention to this sin because that was all the way in step one. This is step four now, mm. right? And so um, now where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them, Jesus agrees with his people because his people agree with his word. Remember when Paul was persecuting people, well, formerly named Saul, mm. and he was killing Christians. Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me now think about it think about it now you're talking with a lot of authority about this but you're admitting that you thought this uh, yeah, yeah and i mean and i mean as we're going through these verses and discussing these different things we're we're not attacking the people who have an erroneous view we're saying hey reconsider this we've all had erroneous views absolutely you have, yeah wait till you hear mine oh here it comes well before before we jump to you steve I, because it's it's kind of funny we, we did this independently hey make sure we you know come say say what thing and the one that i was going to talk about is is actually in the same chapter a couple verses before that which is uh um verse 18 Ver, verily i say unto you whosoever shall bind on earth you shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven and i'm actually going to be even more embarrassing because i'm saying i still don't know what it means Right, I I, I have an, a, a couple of ideas what I think it means, but I still because but when we ad- address the context before and after, it's clear to me that it has to be something about church discipline, and it can't just mean the church has this power to bind things on earth, and then God is kind of held um, so to, to to the to you, the to you the, can't the, bind Satan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I thought so back in the day. <laughs> what did Vody say? If you haven't bound this week, you just keep him that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did Why the church down the street know that <laughs> right. you bound him this week? Because I'm just going to recommend you all keep him. Right. And like we said, once somebody again, let him loose. Once once again, I think that, you know, I, I, I try to study the body, the Bible. Honestly, I try to implement some of the, the, the things that we talked about. And it's hard for me to kind of make sense of it. And, um, here's, a, and here's a good example why those gaps in those books and those background commentaries the term binding and loosing were uh, uh, rabbinical terms. Mm. Loosing meant permitting, and binding meant forbidding. 
Mm. Yes. See, I didn't know that. Yeah. And and the, and and remember, and I'm reading it. I'm trying to implement it. But I, what I didn't do, I didn't do the historical context. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't look to see what those words really so meant. So to the Jews, they understood what that meant. Yeah. But us, we think binding and loosing. We're thinking of ropes and you know. Uh, yeah. And we, we also, tape. And we also thinking. <laughs> and we also thinking about. And, uh, we also thinking about an authority that God has given us. This special mm-hmm. power. Yeah. When when nothing is absent from God, God is just saying the the judgment you've made. I'm. As long as it's according to what I've said, is good. Yeah, right. And so, it doesn't even mention that the devil and the binding and loosing. But we use it that it's way. It's not all. We, even, I bind you. Like there's the, words not that well, they, are not even in there. Well, they throw it in there. They pull from Genesis. I mean, from Revelation twenty. Satan was bound. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so they they just pull from everywhere. Right. So 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 I I know it's something's wrong. I know it can't mean that, but like I haven't really investigated. I haven't mm-hmm. really studied it. And I think we also have to be able to be honest to ourselves and say, hey, I'm not sure what that means. So Steve, there's nothing wrong with that. Matter of fact, you just brought up Revelation chapter twenty about Satan being bound. What is that about? Satan being bound. Yes. Well. I mean that's a whole nother podcast what we're gonna do. Right. But yeah, just tough. give me a little nugget. For yeah, now. well well it depends on what view you're you're looking through. So I would come from an on-mill view. Good. So the fact that Satan is bound doesn't mean that Satan is bound from activity, but he's bound from deceiving the nations. And so it's not that Satan is bound that he can't do wickedness, but he's hindered and bound to from stopping the gospel from spreading. Mm. But then it says in the end that he will be loose for a while. And right. could we be living in that period now? We could be. It's possible. Yeah. But it's not binding Satan where he's totally unable to do anything. Right. Mm. Um, because Jesus said, unless you bind a strong man, right, yes. you cannot plunder his house. house. Yeah. And exactly. so did Jesus plunder his house? Yeah. Yeah. He a saved us. He, he saved A little, me. right? Just a little? Yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't be here today with his podcast if yeah. he did Photo-Evangelium. Yeah. 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 So anyway. But that's not the scripture I mess up. All right. Are you done, Glenn? One of many. Oh, that was it. I'm, yeah. I'm still learning. Thank you guys for helping. That actually helped, the, the context. Mm-hmm. We're, we're here to help, brother. Thank you. So no I charge, know, no charge. I know everyone in this room probably got this one wrong. Uh-oh. And I know some people might disagree with me when they hear it. But if you read it in context, you will find out that it's not what it means. The thief, John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. The thief is Satan, right? I came that you may have life and life abundantly. Well, yes, Phil, people who would say, what would people say? The thief is Satan. Devil. If you read through John chapter 10, does Satan show up at all? I just jammed him into the text. So he's right there. Exactly. I just drew his picture on the side. He's omnipresent. So in order to understand John chapter 10, the three rules, context, 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 John chapter 10 is basically an exposition of Jesus's explanation of John chapter nine. Yes. Mm. So you can't understand John chapter ten until you understand what happened to the blind man in John chapter nine. Jesus said, right in verse ten, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. I came that you may have life and life abundantly. So we see Jesus saying in John ten one, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, Jesus is the door as well but climbs in another way. This man is a thief and a robber, Whoa. right? And then we read in verse seven, so Jesus said again to them, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves 
and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. And then in 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Sounds like I came that they may have life abundantly. So he's saying that the thief are these other false shepherds because he said he was the good shepherd. And he's replying and responding back to verse chapter 9 where the Pharisees, and he's talking to the Pharisees now, he's calling them the thief and the robbers because what did they do to the blind man that Jesus healed? They excommunicated him and kicked him out of the synagogue. Remember? They kept asking him, he says, what? Do you want to become his disciples? You were born in sin. How dare you speak to us like that? And they threw him out. And it says, Jesus heard this in verse 35 that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So what was Jesus saying, that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy? What did the Pharisees try to do to this man? Excommunicate him. Right, yeah. destroy his life. They didn't. They didn't care for him. Right. They didn't try to give him life abundantly. They didn't rejoice that he was blind and now he saw. They kicked him out and excommunicated him and called him a sinner. Jesus found him and Jesus saved him. He worshipped Jesus. Right. So the thief is not Satan here, but it's the false teachers, which are the Pharisees that Jesus is speaking about. But so many of us just heard that. If you hear a lie long enough, you believe it. <laughs> and if you hear a statement that's misquoted long enough, you believe it. So I don't know if this is a parallelism here, Glenn, but you see in the beginning the thieves and robbers, and then Jesus uh, uses the word thief, which connects with the verse pre- previously as thieves and robbers. Would that be a parallelism? Yeah, I would say that. And it, it's, it's, it's a continuation of what he's been talking about. And I think he did a great Synonymous job. Synonymous parallelism. Oh, now you're getting deep. I got to look at get my <laughs> yeah. dictionary out. Don't look that one up, baby. <laughs> so, yeah, we kind of tackled. I mean, it's it, we can probably do this all day. You know, all the verses start from Genesis on where we I kind can of do this all day. <laughs> just misinterpreting all over the place. And I, and I just think it's it's fair to say, you know, we want you to have the tools to not make these kind of mistakes, to kind of reevaluate where you are. So. I, there's a there's a text I wanted to go over, which I think is is just one of these things that we we mess up all the time. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, and I'm I'm pretty sure you guys are gonna finish a verse before I could even I even start it. But for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. And so is what a beautiful promise from God's word, right? It's it's like it it's many people use it as their life verse. Right, and as, like Phil said, it's one of the second most searched Bible verses on the internet. Can I read that in the ESV? So maybe no. people who haven't read the King James might. No problem. Go ahead. Yeah. It. Yeah. it says, uh, "Glenn loves the King James, and we love Glenn." <laughs> <laughs> we do love Glenn. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord: plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So, so this verse, when inter- interpreted incorrectly can be used as an encouragement, as a life verse, as a, a attaboy, right? It implies that God wants to give you that best life now. It's a promise that God wants to keep you healthy and wealthy and to the degree that it is right that he, you can kind of name and claim these things. And, you know, I, it's not saying that. 
no it, it, it's not saying that and we gotta look we gotta investigate we gotta um interpret and implement yeah right? so in the interpretation um who wrote this verse well, I'm, I'm assuming it's a prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah. In, or under in the inspiration the Hebrew, from, from God, right? Yeah. I think in the Hebrew, it's Jehemiah. Excuse me. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think <laughs> that's right. God bless you. you. Do Thank not you. take translation advice from us <laughs> in terms of uh, and Hebrew. He wrote it to Israel, who at this time was under Babylonian captivity. Mm-hmm. So that's an important piece of information to know because right. they're captive and they were exiled because of their sin. Yes. So they were under judgment? Yes. They were under yes. whose judgment? God's, God's judgment. judgment. Yes. There you go. So knowing that backdrop is crucially important, you might want to get a new coffee cup already at this point, right? <laughs> you might want to change your life first. And in verse 11, God was assuring them that they would not be annihilated by Babylon. Which was a fear. Which was a fear, and rightfully so. I mean, what would you think if you were under God's judgment mm-hmm. and exiled to a foreign land? Right, right. Right? This doesn't look good. But instead, they needed to pray that they would benefit from the welfare of their captors. Right, right. So a little context. So before this, the prophets are saying, before they were taken away, before Babylon came and captured it, these prophets are saying, um, God's not going to take you away. Babylonians are not going to come and get you. Don't worry about it. Everything's fine. Everything's Jeremiah's out there saying, hey, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Right. And, the, and the prophet said, no, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. God would never do that. Right? God God would never do that. They're kind of saying, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you. Yeah? God would never do that to us. With the children of God, with the people of God, God would never do that. And we're going to find out later on that he did do that. Yes, he did. Yeah. This is not the God of Joe Olstein who, uh, you know, God has your picture on his refrigerator mm-hmm. and he puts your colorings underneath it. You know, this is the God of the scriptures, yeah. not the God of the Osteenification of America. Yeah. So, so the first thing, so it's not addressed to individual Christians, individual people. It's addressed to the people of Israel. So it's, it's no one in particular. The nation. Right. So he's not saying to you, Steve, that, you know, he has these thoughts for you personally, and this is what he's going to do for you personally. He's not talking about, you know, Joe Schmo, any any particular believer, and that's how we've been taking that verse. That's the first mistake. Find out who he's talking about. It's a particular when, what? nation in a particular situation. Yeah, and and they're once again under judgment. judgment. So you're kind of calling judgment on yourself if you want to you want to name this verse and claim this verse, right? And so. This is not written as an individual promise to anybody, right. let alone it's not written as individual promise of health and wealth, as you said right. before. Yeah. But also, and I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself, but tell me, it's really the fruit of the promise wasn't for the people that it was spoken to. Exactly. Woo! Exactly. It's talking about 70 years. I like the next generation. They're not living like, <laughs> even today, people aren't living to be 70. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The prophesied uh, restoration was for a future generation. Exactly. So, when so, Cyrus made the proclamation. Yeah, exactly. So you, so it's not a life verse. <laughs> it's a generational <laughs> verse. It's not, I don't, whatever you want to say. It's definitely not a life verse. No. Um, so we got to read it in context. Some people right? are taking the plaques off their walls as we speak, <laughs> probably. Yeah. So we definitely got to read it in context. So maybe you can um, hit it, uh, Steve, in verses five and seven. 
So verses five and seven. I'm sorry. I'm already. I'm in Second Chronicles because because I'm way ahead. I'm looking at got Cyrus's it. decree. No, Phil got it. Phil's right. got it. Phil's got it. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they might bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Right. So they're in the city that was, the, you know, you, they're conquered. They're taken away from what they are known, and they're in the city that they know. God's comforting them. God's saying, I, I, "I'm punishing you. You're getting judgment. You deserve what you're getting. But this is not permanent forever. This is not going to be a destruction of you. I want you to live. I want you to get married. I want you to to build houses. I want you to plant gardens. This is not the end. This is a punishment that you deserve. That's going to be an extension. All right. The problem is, if we left it there, still doesn't explain what what this verse is about. Right. We got to go to verses seven through nine. So verse seven is saying. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives. And pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof you shall have peace. So he's saying pray. Okay? Verse 8. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither be hearkened to your dreams which you have dreamed. So like I was saying before, when Jeremiah is saying you're going to be taken away. You're going to be captured. This is going to happen because of your sin. These people are saying, no, he's not. Peace, peace. They're saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Right. Now they're captured. These same diviners have switched. This is the end. God's judged you. It's over. And so on the one hand, they were giving them peace when there was none. And now they're, they're really laying it thick on. And he's saying, no. They went from Hakuna Matata to Chicken Little. Exactly. Everything's okay to the sky is falling. But weren't they prophesying too about how God was going to... Because remember, when they were in captivity, Jerusalem was still standing. Correct. Right? Yeah. And Because and uh, Babylon put up their own king, yeah. puppet yeah. kings. Yeah. And weren't they prophesying that God is still going to do something there, but God actually went and destroyed it finally? Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. That's a good point. And, but, and also, so they're devastated. You know, and he's saying, he's saying, no, 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 I'm going, I'm good. This is not forever. This is not forever. Don't listen to these false prophets, just like they told you the wrong thing then. And also, I think some of them are probably saying, well, he's going to, he's going to save us this generation. Mm-hmm. He's going to do it now. He says, no, 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 hunker down. Right? Don't think, think about it. If, if, if you know that you're not going to get a job for four or five years, you, it's a different strategy than you're going to get a job tomorrow. Sure. God's saying, I'm going to deliver you, but right now it's going to take a while. God is saying, plant roots. Exactly. This is not transient. You're yes. going to be here a while. Yes. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't make yourself at home. Right. Yeah. Don't, be Babylon- <laughs> <laughs> don't be Babylonians. Right. Uh-huh. Don't forsake everything and think that I've forsaken you so you can forsake me. But you're going to accept this punishment and be prepared that you will have to leave. But right now, you hunker down. He, and he you wants can them see- to bloom where they're planted, and they're planted here at this time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can see the attitude of the captives in the psalm where it says, we hung our harps on the willow. Yeah, exactly. They, they, our, our captives told us to sing us a song of Zion. Yeah, yeah. How can we sing when, when, when we're, we're in a, a strange a land? land? Yeah. And so they were grieving and weeping heartbroken, and yeah. heartbroken and they were under God's judgment and they deserved that judgment because they were idolaters mm-hmm. and they refused to listen to the prophets for years God was sending prophets mm-hmm. and they wouldn't listen and they kept listening to the false prophets mm-hmm. right that that were prophesying exactly. and so now they're in a place where 
God is judging them, but God is also being merciful to them in their judgment. Right. So verse verse 10 is saying it's going to be seven years. 70 years. That's a long time. If you're 50, you're not going to It's done, <laughs> right? But 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 there's hope. There's hope is what yeah. he's saying. So so come on so that now verse 11 makes a lot more sense. Right? For I have good intentions toward you. You're suffering, you're under this judgment right now, but I have good intentions. It's for your benefit. Like when we're talking about church discipline. Yeah. It's for your benefit. I want to reconcile with you. But it's but it's not but I'm not going to just bring you back. You're not going to learn anything. Read the verse again now. What? Yeah. The whole verse knowing that or I can read it. Yeah. For I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Mm. And then he continues. Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and Mm. all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't forgotten you. So is there something wrong with the promise? No. No, it's a beautiful promise. Does that mean we can't apply it at all today? Yeah. We can definitely apply the principle. Right. So where where is this promised land that we're looking for? Heaven. Uh, right? Yeah. We're it's looking the, forward yeah. to heaven. So and heaven a, on earth, the new Jerusalem comes down exactly. out of heaven, and we're going to live on a renewed earth, mm-hmm. right, with God forever. So mm-hmm. our hope is not here. We're not exactly. looking for the promises of fulfillment here. We're living in the already, not yet. Mm-hmm. Right, so we're already saved, but we're not yet fully saved. We haven't received the fullness of our redemption. We're still waiting for a glorified body. We're still waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. Right? We're still waiting to see Jesus because when we see Him, we'll be like Him. We'll never be able to sin again. Nicely right? said. We'll never be able to even be tempted again. Come, yeah. Lord Jesus, Woo! come. <laughs> yeah. It's not that we're guaranteed to be rich. Not that we're guaranteed to have no problems. Always healthy. That's not what He's saying. He's saying, it's actually saying, if you want to really think about it deeply, even though, once again, we can't apply it to individuals. But if he was, it's that while you're going through difficulties, I haven't forgotten you. I haven't forsaken you. I still have a plan and a promise. You still have hope. But it's not that, how is it, how is it misused? Right? Yeah, I mean, again, people slap it on their coffee cup and they think it just applies to anything. I can live however I want and God is going to do right by me. But but think about it, Pastor. What does it mean if you aren't healthy and you're not wealthy? Yeah. You're not not doing something. God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. So what are you doing to, to bar God from doing these good things in your life? That's not the context. That's not what he's talking about. It's not for individuals. And it's actually a, for people that are under judgment. So once again, a simple scripture, eh, innocent misinterpretation, but that destroys lives. It makes people under bondage because I'm not wealthy. I don't have a great job. I'm not doing wonderful. Everything's not going, am I really saved? Am I really a good Christian? What am I doing? The Job syndrome. You're not tithing enough. Yeah, exactly. Throw the money. Show me the money. Exactly. It could be tithing. It could just be, you know, you're not serving. You're not going to church enough. Yeah, there's something lacking in you mm-hmm. for the reason you're not getting what God has promised you. And, and so they're looking for this hope and future. But they're looking, a lot of times, this hope and future looks like a 
job promotion. It yeah. looks like, right? Yeah. And so they're not looking for the hope and future, which in Hebrews 11, they were looking for a city whose builder and maker was God, God. right? They weren't looking for this temple stuff down here. They were looking for their heavenly Jerusalem, yeah. the heavenly city, mm-hmm. right? Our hope and f- What is my hope and future? If my hope and future is getting a better job, mm. right? Or if I'm sick, like, like uh, um, Glenn said in the last podcast, if I'm sick and God heals me, I'm still going to die. Yeah. So it's only temporal. Exactly. Our hope is the hope of the resurrection. Amen. Right? A glorified body to be with Christ, to be in the new heavens and the new earth. Exactly. So when you uh, take that principle and apply it to a New Testament concept, Mm. it's not talking about blessings here that it's our hope and future, Mm. but our blessings in heaven that Christ saved us. And he promised that he's coming again. He's preparing a place for us and he will come again and receive us. So Jesus is my hope and my future. But their hope and promise was looking for the uh, returned exiles who went back to Jerusalem under Cyrus, correct? Yes. And the decree went out and they went back and began. So we see that in, in Ezra, in Nehemiah, in Haggai, and Zechariah, and Malachi is that context of the uh post-exilic exiles who came back into the land Mm. to build a temple and rebuild the walls. And that was the hope they were looking for to be back in the promised land because building the temple is the place where God said he would be. So to them, they were looking to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple to, uh, so that they could again, worship God. So to misread it is to miss that prophecy that was fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and though the Lord was punishing Judah, their chastisement was for their good. And so there are times maybe we're in sin. And so bad things happen. That doesn't mean God throws us away. He didn't forget his people. And when we're in sin, he doesn't forget us. So he would chastise us wait a second. for our good. Phil, are you saying that maybe one of the hopes and plans and futures that God has for me is actually he's going to discipline me for my good? Yes. He can discipline us for his glory and for our good. So you might be listening right now, and I'm not saying that you just need to like look at your circumstances and saying if things aren't like blowing your way, that all of a sudden, you know, I'm under the chastisement of God. I don't know your situation, and I don't know if God is chastising you, but God does discipline those he loves. And so if you're a child of God, at some point in your life, God is going to discipline you. Because he loves you. If you have never experienced the discipline of God, I would check at the door to see if you're poured again and if you're being regenerated. Steve, have you ever been disciplined by God? <sighs> More cool. than I would like to admit. Glenn? Still being disciplined. <laughs> wow. And Steve, you had, a, you had a scripture you wanted to discuss, right? Yes. Well, it's not really a scripture. Cliche? Mine is a Christian cliche. Though Phil is the king of cliche. Boom. Yeah, I'm going to throw in a cliche and Steve, here. Is, is, is some of these cliches sound like scripture when they're said enough times, well, right? No, a- absolutely. So I'm going to quote a scripture verse, and you try to find out who said this verse. Okay. Ready? I like quizzes. God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. Peter. St. Jerome. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, who said that? Gandhi. Gandhi. So it's not a scripture verse? Which apostle was that? <laughs> <laughs> not even close. Mahatma no. Gandhi. 
Yes. So, so I know you guys have heard that cliche many times, right? Yes. And God have said it and have used it and have mm-hmm. believed it. God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. But is this true? So when we hear this, we have to put on our thinking caps. You know, it's really good to take every uh, statement that somebody says to its logical conclusion, right? When somebody says something, take it to its logical conclusion to see if it makes sense. Does God love everyone the same without exception? Absolutely not. No. no. Well, p- people right now are listening just have a problem with what you and Glenn just said. Yes, they do. God has to love everyone the same because God is love. And God so loved the world. Exactly. But does God love all sinners the same? What do you no. mean by all? Well, some churches have plastered across that platform, God is love. Yes. And their theology stops there. God is love. They know about God, but they know about God is love. So Glenn is black. So that means I know Glenn what? well, right? <laughs> because you're black, right? So yeah, yeah. have I just described to our audience who Glenn is? No, I think you missed some stuff out. <laughs> yeah, a lot of stuff, right? Glenn has a beard. So do you know Glenn now, right? All pe- bearded people are, are godly. Glenn is handsome, single women. <laughs> <laughs> and available. <laughs> but no I'm, just, I'm just giving you some attributes or some characteristics of Glenn, but I'm not describing the fullness of who Glenn is. You didn't yeah. exhaust all exactly. of Glenn's Glenn traits. Glenn is a father, right? Glenn works in the elevator business. He's a deacon. Glenn is very smart. He's articulate. Um, he uh, is a witty. good teacher. He's witty. So there's a I'll lot of things. I'll tell you when you're saying something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Keep right? it coming. Right? Keep it coming. <laughs> so to say God is love is true. For 1 John 4.16 says God is love. Mm. John 3.16 says for God so loved the world that he gave his son. God is love, and we would never say anything otherwise because yeah. we want a God who is love. Right. But is that all that God is? No. 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 The right? 66 books talking about it. And if God is love, and he is, does love then hate anything or anyone? I'll put it this way. Phil, you have two beautiful daughters. Amen. Yes. You love your daughters. Truly. So because you love your daughters, does that cause you to hate things? Yes. What? I would hate if somebody tried to attack my daughters. Right. I would fight with every ounce of my being. Uh, I'd be right there with you. I would hurt the person who tried to harm my daughters mm-hmm. in any way. Would you be hating them at that moment when they're trying to violate your children, or no. would you be loving them? Pastor, you have to separate <laughs> the sin from the sinner. <laughs> you, can't, you can't separate the sin from the sinner. Yeah. I'm going to attack the person who's attacking my, my girls. I'm going to protect them with all my might. I can't just say, oh, gentlemen, will you please stop slapping and kicking my daughters around? No way. Get Absolutely. the Louisville slugger, knock them out, and then we'll, you know, we can baptize you after you get out of prison. Absolutely. <laughs> but the bottom line is that when you love someone, there are things you hate because those things are attacking the very thing that you love. Absolutely. And so there are things that God loves, and there are people that God loves, But the Bible also says there are people that God hates. Now, I know what I just said is going to be problematic for a lot of our listeners. Because at one time it was problematic for me because God is love. God would never hate anyone. Does God love Satan? No. Is Satan Uh, a being? Yes. Yes. Does God love him or does God hate him? I I think he hates him. And matter of fact, Steve, going back to the analogy, if I didn't do everything in my power to stop someone from hurting my girls... I'm showing that I hate my girls. You don't exactly. love them. 
Yeah, I would show I'm not. I don't love them. No, of course not. Right. So, does God hate anyone? Well, let's look at some verses in the Bible. Let's let the Scripture speak, speak, and define what we believe about God. That's such an odd method. Yeah, let's get a full picture of who God is. Let's not pick selective verses that we like. But avoid the verses that make us feel uncomfortable. And, and yeah. some of these do. Some of these, some of the some of these are, are hard. Gonna, yeah. I read them yeah. and I yeah. feel uncomfortable. I'm yeah. like, wow. Because I want a God who is all loving. I am a wicked sinner. I need a loving God who is not going to pour out his wrath on me. And we'll talk about that later. But let's look at some scripture verses and find out if God hates anyone. And I like what you said before when you described Glenn, because God has attributes. Exactly. And the only attribute that many people use is that God is love. But uh, that doesn't fully describe God. No. Because he's not just love. As a matter of fact, the Bible doesn't say that God is love, 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 does it? But it does say he's holy, holy, holy. It says he's thrice holy. Right. So let's focus so, on that one. Wow. I mean, this is this is so, big time. Psalm five, verses five and six. Uh oh, you 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 go in there? I'm going can there. I, can I read this? Because yes, you I can. didn't even know this this verse existed in the Bible. And when we preached on this verse out in Union Square in New York City, I mean the crowd went crazy, especially one individual. How dare God? Yeah. So but here's what it says. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Now, let me just mention one thing. The person who said you can't say God hates anyone. The guy said, I'm a Christian. God doesn't hate anyone. How dare you say that? I pulled him over and I go, I didn't say it. God says this about himself. And I showed him in the Bible. I said, do you believe that God's word is true? And like he didn't know what to do with that because I wasn't just making it up. I wasn't just throwing it out there like the Westboro Baptists who are not Baptists at all. And who are not Christians. (laughs) And who are not Christians who hang up signs that says God hates fags and all of that. And God wants homosexuals to die and all those things. They're not Christians. I wasn't. I was reading a Bible verse, not just pulling my own idea out of the air. And I read this to someone before, and they said, that's your interpretation. I said, I'm not interpreting it. Just read it. I'm reading it. There you go. Sometimes you reading know? is interpreting exactly. because it's so clear. Right. So what did God not say in this verse? He didn't say. He hates all evil acts. He didn't say that. Though he does. Yes, he does. Right. He doesn't say he abhors murder and deceit, though he does. Yes. He said he hates all evildoers and he abhors. That's not a good word. No. The bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. Wow. Right? Psalm 5 seems to be saying God hates both the sin and the sinner alike. Yes. But are there any more verses? I mean... Is that the only verse in the Bible? If that was the only verse in the Bible, it's dangerous to kind of build a doctrine on one verse. If yes. you find one obscure verse in the Bible where it's never repeated anywhere else, 
We need to be careful to build a doctrine upon that, and we need better understanding and to study what is really going on here. Because the Bible is consistent with itself. If the Bible is going to teach something, it's going to be taught somewhere else. Yes. So where else do we see that? Psalm 11, 11, 5, Glenn. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Wait, whose soul hates who? The Lord. Hates what? God. He hates violence. He lo- he he. The one who loves violence, he, his soul hates them. Right. So God hates violent people. Right now, he tests the righteous and the wicked. Yeah, but he hates those that do violence. They fail the test. Not just the violence. The ones who do the violence. Okay, so here's one that we're probably going to get in a lot of trouble for. But you know what? We have to speak the truth in love. True story. Right, and this is something that's not accepted today. But we love the truth of God more than we love the opinions of men. But here in Deuteronomy 22.5, God says this, and God means it. And no matter what the culture tells us today, this is still true. Phil, you want to read 20, Deuteronomy 22.5? A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Abomination? what are we talking about here? What do they call that today? There's an anachronism for this. What do they call it? L-B-L-G-B-T-Q-Q-I-A. There's a lot of letters going on there. So transgenderism. Right. Right? Transsexual, transvestite, whatever you want to call it. You have men who say, I think I'm a woman. Trapped in a man's body, or, or, or specifically or transvestite, trans- yes. or, or even just transvestite, exactly. where they, they dress up as a woman and dress up as a man. Exactly. Let's not even go as far in. Yeah. Just plainly saying transvestite. Steve, they even have, and Glenn, they even have drag queens reading in the stories in libraries. Yes. And one of them expose himself to the children. Wow. And people are getting behind this. I was going to a, a children's museum, you know, for kids, and it was all these rainbows and all these colors. And I went with my son, and it was just like, yeah, we're trying to promote LGBT. And I'm like, I don't understand what this has to do with this this environment where kids are supposed to come to be feel safe. I'm not sure. What, like, you're not doing that to promote regular marriage. You don't That's do that for that. Marriage. Yeah. So why, why are we having a special situation to promote something that we all know is not a common normal practice because man is totally depraved and they want to do things their own way we read romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32 yes right they rejected god they Mm. suppressed the uh general revelation that god has given and And god uh, has given them over mm -hmm, god has given them over so what does god say about those who dress up uh, man dressing in women's clothes does god think the act is an abomination no the person the actor is an abomination. Whoever practices this. So like when you watch a movie, you're watching the actor. You're not watching just the act, if you will. Yeah. There's no th- th- there's no action without somebody doing it. Right. So is that the only people that God hates? What about his own people? What about Hosea chapter 9, verse 15, when his own people refused to repent and they began to worship idols? What did God say in Hosea 9, 15 about his very own people? Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. So God clearly hates sinners, does he not? Yes. Yet God loves sinners. And we're going to get there. All right. And we're going to look at one more verse about God hating people. 
And that's in Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. Listen to this. There are six things that God hates, seven that are an abomination to him. So right away, it's saying that there are things that God hates. Yes. And seven is an abomination. Haughty eyes. So let me tell you, does God hate haughty eyes? Like, can you, what if you had haughty eyes? Could you just pluck your eyes out and God wouldn't hate that anymore? Guess so. Right? <laughs> is it the right. eyes that God hates? Or do those eyes belong to somebody? Yes, they're doing it. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So these six things that God hates and seven's abomination, they all have to do with sins that people commit. And God hates the tongue that belongs to the person. And the last one, he said he hates the one who sows discord among the brother. Right? Yeah, the sin comes up, comes from out of you. Exactly. So it's not some, sin is not some disembodied spirit floating around like a bad cold. Mm. You know, be careful. You might catch some sin. Sin is within. Mm. We're totally depraved. We were born sinners. We're sinners by nature. Sin is by choice. Yeah, Fact. I use this Fact. passage in Proverbs when I have preached in the abortion clinics well, outside. Hands that, he hates hands that shed, shed innocent blood. And uh, feet that make haste to run to evil. I thought doctors are supposed to help people, mm -hmm. not murder them. Mm -hmm. So now the last one we're going to look at is in the New Testament, Romans 9.13. Now, if you are struggling with what we're saying, we would encourage you to read Romans chapter 9 in its totality. And take your time and read through that chapter and understand God's sovereignty in choosing people and God's sovereignty in raising up vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And understand that God is sovereign and he can do whatever he wants. So Paul answers the questions of people who are opposing this idea of God. He says, who are you, O man, to speak back to God? Right. So here we see in Romans 9.13, Glenn, you want to read that? Sure. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Oh, no. He didn't hate Esau. From before he was born. From before he was born. So these passages make us feel uncomfortable, don't they? Mm -hmm. But they should make us feel uncomfortable. Because what do these passages show us? That God hates what? Sin. Yes. yes. Right? So God hates sin. Yes. Who does sin? Sinners. We sin because we are sinners. Yeah. Exactly. We're not simply sinners because we sin. Yeah. I, I like that disembodied thing. It's it's not disembodied. It's not separate. It's not like a like you said, a cold. Nebula. Yeah. Yeah. Floating. <laughs> I around. caught some sin. I exactly. Caught, hey pastor, I caught some sin today. Yeah, you have you any medicine? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go to but then you go to James and they'll pray for you to get well, right? <laughs> Anoint some oils on my head after this, okay? So so here's what people say about Jacob and Esau. Some try to make this out to say that, well, God only loved Esau less. For instance, God didn't really hate Esau. He just loved Jacob more. Mm. Doesn't say that. Right? And they go to passages like uh, Luke 14, 26. Phil, do you have that? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So is this the same as God hating Esau? No, no, no. Again, this is a hyperbole. I preached on this whole passage called the cost of discipleship, which you can also find on sermon audio. Yes, that was a plug. But <laughs> Jesus is not teaching us to hate members of our own family. No, because 
then why would he say, husbands, love your wives, if he's saying over here, hate your wives? Or, or a man who doesn't take care of his family is an infidel. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't tell you to love your children, and Harry's telling you to hate your family? No. So, and, and he's also saying for us to love our wives as ourselves. Exactly. So he's not telling us to hate ourselves. So the concept of God loving less doesn't work. Tries to soften right. the issue that God does hate someone. Yes. But let's give him that. So those who say God loves everyone the same, but then here they have to say, well, it just means he loves them less. So if God loves someone less, then we can say that God doesn't love everyone there you go. the same, correct? Exactly. We demand that God loves everyone the same, right? Because we just talked about it. Glenn, little Johnny down the street, right? do you love him just as much as you love your son? No. Right? But we demand that God does that. We demand that God loves everyone the same. His children, just as much as people who hate God, who want to destroy his children, we want God to love them just as much as he loves us. No, but Steve, no. And we get mad when God doesn't do it. But Steve, I mean, God's not like us. Doesn't he love everyone the same? Because well, he's not like me, Glenn, and you. Well, here's the thing. We have to define what love is. A husband loves his wife. Yes. Do people ever get divorced? Yes. When they get divorced, do they love one another usually? No. No. That's why they get divorced. So the love was there, but it changed. What's one thing about God's love that gives us security? Doesn't, doesn't change. Right? God doesn't change. He can't change. Immutable. He's immutable. Right? Another attribute. I like that. <laughs> now we got three. Love, holiness, immutability. Let's look at three verses, and then we're going to end this up. But let's look at Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3. Glenn, you want to read that? The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. God is speaking to Israel, right? The nation. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, I loved you with an everlasting love. And so what does that everlasting love look like? Continued faithfulness mm. to you. The love is everlasting and it never ends. And it produces God's continued faithfulness, though he's punishing them. We just spoke about in uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, Only a couple of verse, right? chapters after. Exactly. He was punishing them, but yet he still loves them. Right. So, Glenn, read Isaiah 54, verse 8. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And then one more, Psalm 107, 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures temporarily. No. no. His steadfast love endures forever. When God loves someone... He loves them always, and his love never ends. Can we agree with that? Yes. yes. I'm, right? I'm betting my whole I eternal life on that. I want to read this one verse, though, Steve. Go ahead. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, does that sound like... That God had a different relationship with, with Israel at that time than yes. everybody on the earth? And this is what he says. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people, but it is because of the Lord... 
because he loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the hand of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Wow. So God didn't love the Egyptians, but he did love his people. Amen. And right? that love moved God to act and deliver his people. Absolutely. And that's not to say that currently right now there are not Christians in Egypt that he loves, right. Egyptians that he loves right now, because there are Christian Egyptians now, mm -hmm. or Egyptian Christians, I guess, if you reverse it. So basically, and I'm trying to, we're trying to get to a point here, right, about God hating people. When God loves someone, he loves them always and forever, and that love never changes. Right. He might discipline them, right? He might hide himself from them. But he continues to be faithful to them and love them. So how did God show his faithfulness to those he loves? To Christians today. How did God show his faithfulness? By sending his son. He showed it by sending his son. 1 John 4.10 says this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath bearer for our sin. John said here that God loved us and he, he showed that love by sending his son to be our wrath bearer. Why? Because we're sinners. We're sinners by nature. We're sinners by choice. Like you said, yes. we broke God's law, but God sent his son to die in our place as a substitute to pay for all of our sins. The substitutionary atonement of Christ. But whose sins did Christ pay for? Did he pay for everyone's sin that ever lived? No. He paid for the sin of his people, the ones that he called from before the foundation of the world. And we see that where? In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Phil, can you read that? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him from before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Those whom God loved and chose before the foundation of the world. In love. In love, he did what? He predestined. He predestines. And so we see that all the way back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. We're talking about Mary. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not all people, his people. So here's the thing. There are people who God loves, and the Bible talks about a people who God hates. We, we, we read the scriptures, and we see that God both hates people, and God both loves people. Right. Now, all people are sinners. So God loves sinners, does he not? With a general yes. type of yeah. love. He causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. Yeah. And God hates sinners. But here's the question that I want to ask. If God's love never changes and God loves everyone the same, what are we going to do when we read verses like this? Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. And listen to what John writes. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath 
poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So the question has to be asked then, if God loves everyone the same and God's love caused him to send his son to those whom he chose before the foundation of the world, in, in love he predestined them before the foundation of the world, they were born sinners and God sent his son Jesus to bear their sin and pay for their sin. His name shall be called Jesus. He will save his people from their sin. God's love caused him to save a people, not try to save, not do his best, but actually save a people for himself. And Jesus died on the cross and bore the wrath that they deserved, right? Yes. If God did that for everyone, and yet we read in Revelation and in other passages where people died and are in hell. And they're in hell where God is pouring out his wrath upon them. Yes. Is God loving them when he's pouring out his wrath upon them? No. I, I don't see that. But God's love is everlasting and it doesn't change. Right. Yes. So then if God's love is everlasting and doesn't change... And there are people in hell who God is pouring out his wrath upon. Jesus came to save us from the wrath of God. Yet there are people suffering the wrath of God. So if God loved them with an everlasting love, God would have saved them from his wrath. But now they're experiencing his wrath. So the truth of the matter is that there are God's love is everlasting towards his elect. That's a comfort. If you're a Christian today, you never have to worry about God's love ever, ever changing towards you. And before I became reformed, before I understood the doctrine of election, I used to struggle as a young Christian. If I sinned, people would say, brother, you sinned, you repented, but it's okay. God still loves you. And I would say, that doesn't comfort me. And they would say, why? Because you said God loves everyone. You said God loves Hitler. And look where Hitler is today. So God loving Hitler that is no comfort to me because if God loves me the way he loves Hitler and Hitler's in hell, what hope do I have? Right. But when I learned about election, that God chose me before the foundation of the world, not because I did anything good, because of his own will, his own pleasure, and that he set his love on me and sent his son to die for me, and that God drew me by his spirit and gave me life when I was dead— that gives me great hope because now it's personal. God loves me. But he elected you. And listen to what Romans chapter 8, verse 30 through and on says. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. <laughs> it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Hallelujah. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's not interceding for the world. He's interceding for us who he love him. He says that in John 17. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying, praying for, for the, the world. world. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Let's have church, brothers. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have it in. <laughs> 
Yeah, so, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Not height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now, in evangelism, is it right to go up to anyone and just say, God loves you so much? It has a wonderful plan for your life. No. No. How do we know God loves them? And listen, people say you can't tell people with that attitude, that uh, with election and with God hating... So you can't preach the gospel because you cannot tell people, do you know God loves you? And I say, I challenge you to go through all of the book of Acts, through Paul, Peter, all the sermons that they preach Jesus, and find one verse where any of them said, do you know that God loves you? Mm. It's a wonderful plan for your life. You'll never find it. It's nowhere. The love of God is demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. In what God did in Christ to reconcile the world to himself, God did in his son. The love of God is displayed as we preach the cross of Christ, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension, and the second coming of Christ. That shows the love of God, that God so loved the world, not every single person, but he loved all peoples of the world, and sent his son to be a propitiation for their sin and jesus never fails jesus is not on a mission to try and save sinners jesus is on a mission to save those whom the father gave him and he said i shall not lose one right and so paul continuously says while we were still sinners Christ died for us. Who's the us? The us is God's elect people. Exactly. It's not all people. He's writing to the Roman church. Right. And then he also says, for Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Again, who are those sinners? Just use the map that we just laid out for you. Matthew one twenty one, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, and all the other Ephesians verses 1. you heard. I mean, it's all over the place. Mm-hmm. So... Steve, you don't love your your wife the same way you love all women, right? No, I would be divorced. <laughs> <laughs> right? So when Christ came from heaven, he came for his bride. Amen. And he died for his bride. There's a book called From Heaven He Came and Sought Her. Christ came for his bride. He came for the good fish, right? He came for the wheat, not the tares. He came for the sheep, not the goats. And all the parables that speak about these true and false conversions, there are people that may act like or play the game or may be professing Christians, but that are really not his. But underneath that all, God sees those whom he chose and he will lovingly save them and keep them and bring them all the way home. Well, to wrap this up, we looked at Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And we really looked at it in context and just unpacked it and showed how to rightly believe it, how to rightly interpret it, and how to rightly apply it. And we also looked at this Christian cliche that many of us have used, that God loves a sinner but hates the sin. God does not love everyone the same. He came and died for his bride. And those of us who know Christ, we are his bride. He has saved us. He will keep us. And he'll bring us home to be with him for all eternity. This concludes our series on Twisted Scripture and Christian Cliches. Check out our website for upcoming episodes. Thank you for taking this time to stop and think about it. If you would like to contact us, please email us at stopandthinkcrew at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at www.stopandthinkpodcast.com. This podcast is listener supported by generous people like you. 
you can give a tax-deductible donation at our affiliate ministry at www.soulfishingministries.org and click on our donate link to give securely through PayPal. Thank you for listening to Stop and Think About It.